Are you ready for the most ridiculous internet sports show you have ever seen? Welcome to React, home of the most outrageous and hilarious videos the web has to offer. So join me, Rocky Theus, and my co-host, Raiders Pro Bowl defensive end, Max Crosby, as we invite your favorite athletes, celebrities, influencers, entertainers in for an episode of games, laughs, and of course, the funniest reactions to the wildest web clips out there. Catch Reacts on YouTube, and that is Reacts, R-E-A-X-X. Don't miss it. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Regressing to the mean since 2015, it's the Hockey PDO Cast with your host, Dmitry Filipovich. Welcome to the Hockey PDO Cast. My name is Dmitry Filipovich, and joining me is my good buddy, Jonathan Willis. Jonathan, what's going on, man? Hey, great to be here again. Yeah, you've been on a couple of times already, and the feedback's been good, so I thought I'd have you back on. It's been a few days since uh, since we've recorded the Hockey PDO Cast, and obviously there's been a ton of playoff action that's happened since then. And so now the round two's in the books, and we've got our conference finals matchups all sorted out. I thought I'd uh, bring you in here, and we could kind of break this stuff down one by one sounds like a plan cool okay so let's uh let, let's feed into the the east coast bias and start off with that side of the bracket first and i think the the lightning are a team i wanted to to talk about right off the bat here because i think it's it's impossible to overstate just how dominant victor hedman was in the five games against the islanders right Oh yeah, he's he's been tremendous. Uh, actually, if you go back to the regular season results, and and part of it's a result of them sometimes going with uh, seven defensemen, but of the top defensemen in the league, I don't know if there's anybody who got fewer minutes than Victor Hedman, mm-hmm. and I think that really hurt them in the regular season. Whereas in the postseason, uh, particularly with the absence of Anton Strahlman, they've really had to lean on him. And uh, honestly, I think it makes the the team look better when he's playing. Uh, those those heavier minutes that he wasn't playing during the year right and and you'd think that uh you know just by looking at him a guy of his stature should be able to uh carry that burden and i think that that, that's a really good point because i've looked at his statistical resume throughout his career and the one thing i've always circled back to there's no doubt uh his production and and his impact on the lightning but the thing that's kind of still we've been waiting for when thrusting his name into the Norris discussion with some of these other truly elite defensemen in the league is that he's generally around that 22 and a half 23 minute range and I'd personally there's something to be said for the 82 game regular season you don't really want to ride your guys into the ground and they have had that luxury of spreading the wealth a little bit but I would like to see him get into that range and and in this series he was playing like 28 minutes a night and it really showed 
Yeah, absolutely. And and I wonder a little bit. I go I go back and forth on whether or not it makes sense to to sort of rest these guys. Uh, I I do think it it certainly hurts Hedman's Norris chances when he's only playing you know less than twenty three minutes a night. Right. But that to me is more of a secondary consideration to the fact that you know maybe it hurts Tampa Bay's chances of winning as many hockey games as they mm, could. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it hasn't really hurt their chances the the past two years when it's when it's come to the playoffs. I don't think. <laughs> no. Uh so so in in that in that round two series, I mean he was doing everything and, and I think that um the broadcast team made a really good point of how he neutralized John Tavares after that game one outburst. But I think that for the for this lightning team to really match up with the penguins spinning it forward in the Eastern Conference final, I, I think that they're desperately gonna need Anton Strawman to come back and, and not only be back in the lineup but be at least something resembling uh, the player he's been for for a couple of years now at full health, just because they managed to cobble it together against some of this weaker op- weaker competition. But just watching guys like Matt Carl and Andre Schuster, and, and you mentioned the, the seven defense lineup that John Cooper seems to love with guys like Matt Teramina and, and Luke Witkowski. And I, I promise I'm not making these names up. These are actual NHL <laughs> players. Uh, I, I just don't think it's going to get it done. And even, even, even some of the guys who are more, more reliable that you'd expect, you know, could, at least be keeping their heads above water in terms of Jason Garrison or Braden Coburn, I think will will struggle immensely with their sp- foot speed against this this Penguins team that just has blazing speed all throughout the lineup. I completely agree, but I, I have to just take a moment and, and give a shout out, shout out to Matt Teramina, a member of the 2005 Texarkana Bandits, one of the few North American Hockey League players to make the NHL. Uh, so congratulations to him. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no. I felt a little Pierre Maguire there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was a that was a good one. But uh, yeah, I agree, and particularly the guy who really stands out to me is is Matt Carl. I know he he wasn't used as heavily as uh, some of the other players on the list, but he was playing almost eighteen minutes a game in, in the games that he did play, and I don't know that there's any real evidence that he's capable of, of mm. that kind of production. Yeah. I, I was, I've been a little bit disappointed. I haven't seen every Tampa Bay game through these playoffs, but when I have watched them, I've been a little bit disappointed in both Garrison and Coburn. Right. Uh, I, I like both players. I, I just, I was a little surprised that, that there wasn't maybe a bit more reliability from them than, than there has been. Yep. And I think you hit the nail on the head with Strawman. Like Pittsburgh is a team that has three terrifying lines and you cannot get by with one really good defense pairing against them. Yeah, you definitely can't. Um, okay, let's, uh, we'll get to the Penguins in a second because there's obviously a lot to discuss there. But I think that for the Lightning, in these first two series, do you think that the fact that they got through five, in five games and in both, both tries was more of a testament to how good they've played and how they've managed to overcome the injuries to Strawman, Stamkos, and even losing a guy like JT Brown, who's very serviceable for them early in that Red Wing series? Or do you think it's more so just an indictment against the two teams they've played because I think that it's is it fair to say that the Red Wings and Islanders are probably two of the what like worst five teams that made the playoffs uh, certainly the Red Wings uh, the Islanders I go back and forth on it it kind of depends on how you rate regular season performance versus like sorry uh, 82 game regular right. season performance over last 25 game regular season performance mm-hmm. um, the Red Wings certainly either them or Minnesota were the weakest team in the postseason um, to my eye but I also think you can't sell what the Lightning have done short. And uh, to, to go as far as they have, minus Stamkos, minus Strawman, that's massive. Um, 
a, a big chunk of it obviously is Ben Bishop. And, and I know this is another story that's been kind of done to death, but it really does show you what Jonathan Druan has yes. been capable of and, yep. and how badly that situation played out over the regular season and how happy they must be now that they didn't trade him. Yes. No, he's been amazing. Uh, nine points in 10 games, especially on the power play where he has five of those points. And just watching him, I mean, it's all the stuff that when when the entire drama was unfolding in the first place when they sent him down to the AHL and then he demanded that trade and he 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 refused to show up uh, the thing that was puzzling to everyone who was really paying attention was just how obvious a fit it was especially with a guy like Stamkos you would have thought because Juen showed just how elusive he is in the neutral zone and how dynamic he is with the puck in terms of uh, all these no-look passes where he's just flinging it across the ice tape to tape and setting guys up and it would have seemed like a perfect fit for years ever since St. Louis left really they've been trying to find that guy to to set Stamkos up in, in his wheelhouse for those one-timers and they've been trying guys like Kalorn and, and Callahan who don't really seem to mesh stylistically with Stamkos and, and Druan would have seemed like that perfect playmaker and they just never really gave it a legitimate shot so it's kind of cool to see just how productive he's been in these games so far. Well the crazy thing is you can make a case that Druan isn't even hitting um, what you would expect him to do yet in these playoffs. He's got a 4.5 shooting percentage for one. Mm-hmm. And then if you look at the the Lightning lineup, I just have the sheet open in front of me here. Everybody on the team with at least three points has played, with the exception of Brian Boyle, mm-hmm. has played more ice time per game than Drew Ann in this postseason. He's mm-hmm. averaging less than 17 minutes per game. It's It's just incredible. You know, he's been given reasonably i mean not that he's been put in a corner or anything but reasonably limited usage he's not getting any luck in terms of shooting percentage and he's still almost a point per game player for that team yeah no he's been and he's been so fun to watch um okay so let's spin it forward now and discuss the penguins because i think it's it's just remarkable how different this team is from the ones of years past that we've seen flame out early in the playoffs there's there's so much speed and there's so much depth and as you alluded to earlier i i I, I think this is why a guy like John Cooper is, is making a couple million dollars a year and, and is being relied upon to to game plan against them because I certainly don't know really what I would do if I was forced to, to match up with them just because you can't... It's not one of those situations like in years past where you can say, okay, if we manage to just put all of our eggs in the basket of just slowing Crosby down a little bit, we'll have a good chance uh, beating up the at least the other two lines that, that Malkin isn't on on this team, but that's just not a luxury that anyone playing them right now has. I mean, they're they're really rolling four lines. Obviously, Crosby and Malkin's lines are, are still getting a lot of the attention, and, and just the, the sheer production of guys like Hagelin, Bonino, and Kessel on that de facto third line has been has been amazing. But even a guy like, you know, you're looking at Tom Kunockel and, and Matt Matt Cullen scoring big goals and, and and the common thread all these lines have is they play with so much speed and they're just a nightmare to to, to play against in the neutral zone. So I, I just I, I I don't know. It just seems like a a very difficult matchup for pretty much anyone in the league right now. I, I agree entirely with that. Um, I, I I think the one thing that you would really zoom in on if you're any any kind of old school analyst like this is a team that uh, to me playing a physical game against, there's a lot of value in, and especially against their defense. Mm, because yep. that blue line is, and I know you want to talk about the forwards here, but if you're if you're looking at a game plan against the Pittsburgh Penguins, where does just hitting Chris Letang every chance you get rank on that game plan? Because for me, it's right near the top of the list. 
Yes, it, it's definitely near the top. I mean, just look at the the rest of that blue line. I mean, for all the depth I just mentioned up front, it's really, it's remarkable that they won that game. I think what was it, game four against the Capitals without him, just because it's it was like yeah. Trevor Daly playing thirty minutes or so. Like it, it, it seems crazy to me. Yeah, and, and uh, Trevor Daly in the postseason, I was looking at this last night, he's got a, a less than, I mean, not that you really lie, rely on the shot metrics over these 10-game spans or whatever, but mm-hmm. he's at something like a 44% Fenwick rating right. in the postseason, and he's the only other guy playing major minutes behind uh, behind Latang. Like, that that defense is really, it's one name deep, I, and I know that's an oversimplification, but this is not a team with a blue line as much as they're it, it's it's such a bizarre situation where they have the best forwards of any team remaining mm-hmm. and possibly the worst defense of any team remaining yes but I, I mean at the same time just like we mentioned with Hedman if Latang is able to hold up and keep playing 30 minutes a night or so which is, is a really tall task and it's it's certainly possible to envision even if he stays healthy his his performance just deteriorating because it's really tough to to play max effort and, and and keep everything keep all your rate stats up when you're playing that much but if he's able to stay healthy for them and keep playing those minutes then at least you can sort of cobble it together just because it's pretty much cutting the rest of the game in half yeah absolutely and, and that's been the game plan for pittsburgh uh for quite a while now and and it's a it's it's really all you can do with that blue line um I, I think maybe the, the most surprising name, I know you're based out of Vancouver, but the most surprising name on Pittsburgh's roster has to be Nick Benino, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. No, he's been, <laughs> he, he's been remarkable. Just, just, just flashing so much skill and really fitting in perfectly with his nature of wanting to be more of a playmaker. And then Haglin just retrieving all of those pucks in, in, in transition and, and setting them up, moving the other way. And then I think the, the, the other name is, is Kessel just with, Really, it's it's been a bad year for people. I understand that you know the Ducks lost another game seven and Boudreau got fired because of it, and and Ovechkin's team lost in the second round and couldn't translate a good po- a good regular season into postseason success. So people will always have those those tired narratives to fall back on. But otherwise, it's been a it's been a pretty good year for busting the the lazy stuff about how certain guys can't produce when it matters most. Oh, it's it's been a fantastic year for that. Uh, I know we'll get to the West. That's a great example of it. Uh, but Kessel, in particular, I think has had a fantastic postseason, and it's the kind of year that it just reminds. It, well, the 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 standard for me, just because I grew up with it, is has always been Brett Hull. How people said you could not win with Brett Hull, you can't win with Brett Hull, and then you know teams started winning with Brett Hull, and you didn't hear it so much anymore. Uh, Kessel to me is the same kind of ballpark. The idea that he's a guy you cannot win hockey games with was always ludicrous. Um, I, I do think it's interesting that you know his his ideal center in Pittsburgh has been Nick Benino and not Malkin or Crosby, right. and, and that does kind of fit in with his time in Toronto. But uh, he's really shown that, and and not just as a support player, because people say, well, you know, he's away from Crosby, he's away from Malkin, he's out of the limelight. Well, it's pretty hard to be out of the limelight when you're leading the team in scoring. Yes, you know, I think he's definitely been firmly in the limelight if you've been watching just how many goals he's been scoring. Yeah. Uh, so it, I, I guess the the interesting monkey wrench in all of this is Matt Murray's been playing remarkably well, and and Ovechkin and his uh in his 
post-series press conference, I guess, uh, cited the fact that he was really the, the difference in this series. And it's remarkable that, that Braden Holtby is probably going to win the, win the Vesna and he, for all intents and purposes, got outplayed by a, a 21-year-old kid with, what, like 10 NHL games under his belt. But uh, what do you do here if you're running the Penguins and Flurry really is healthy? Because obviously it's easy to say, okay, let's keep playing Murray now that he's been playing so well. If he, if he keeps stopping 93 or 94% of the shots he's he's seeing, then it's, it makes the decision easy. But let's say he has a, a really bad game in game one or game two, and all of a sudden all those questions start creeping up again about whether you should go back to Flurry or whether you should kind of stick with him. Uh, well, for me, I think he's been so good over the course of the postseason, and, and not just over the po- course of the postseason, because... People talk about this guy, you know, it, it sort of, they frame it the way that you just did with your question. You know, he's got 10 career NHL games or whatever the number is. But if you look at his American League numbers, like, they've been off the charts for years. This is a guy who a year ago had a better than 940 save percentage in the American League. I'm sure he was north of 930 this year. Mm-hmm. He's, and, and to me, it kind of speaks to the way we, we look at goaltenders because it's such a weird position and it's, of all the positions, I think it's the one that you can make the case that the NHL as a whole misjudges, miscalculates, misspends, just just hoops the position. And and I understand why there's a lot of hesitation to go with a young goaltender, because if you go with a young goaltender and it doesn't work, it can get really, really bad. But a lot of these guys, I, I'm not sorry, not a lot of these guys, there's a couple of situations where, you know, a young goalie gets a shot, as Murray did through injury, and just just runs away with it. And everything in his AHL career says that this is a guy who, you know, was a potential, I don't want to say franchise goaltender, but I I mean, if you're posting a 940 plus save percentage in the AHL, what else do you call him, right? Yes. So this, this is a surprise, but on one level, it's, it's only a surprise because it's happening so soon. And normally guys that age do not get a chance to do this sort of thing. Right. No, that, that, that's a very good point. And, and you're, you're definitely right in the sense that he's really shown us, other than the fact that he doesn't have a lot of experience, which doesn't necessarily preclude him from from being up up to the task. He's really shown us nothing in his statistical resume to make us think that he's not the best option they have right now. And listen, I'm I'm definitely uh, take everything I say about goalies with a grain of salt because I'm I'm on the record saying that I thought you know a guy like Ben Bishop or or even a Brian Elliott who we'll discuss in a little bit. I, I thought I was very highly skeptical of both of those guys for years, and all they've done is post really good above average numbers, and and now are leading their teams into the conference finals. So. So what do I know about the position? <laughs> well, it's it's one of those positions where unless you're, you know, one of uh, a real goaltending expert, I think you kind of have to well, for me anyway, the way I look at it is that uh, old Donald Rumsfeld phrase about known unknowns. I know that I don't know anything about it, so I, I just uh, look at the save percentage and hope for the best a lot of times. Which, which, which is, you know, we, that that is definitely an admirable thing. It's sometimes it's it's tough, especially for people in our position where if there's people that rely upon you for uh, information and analysis and opinions, it's tough to sometimes be like, hey, listen, I'm going to take a step back from this because I really don't know. I can give you an education guess based on the information we have available to us but you have to understand that it's it's far from a given and, and sometimes uh it's easy to blur those lines and forget that well and, and we could all goaltending is one of those places where we could all use a little bit less certainty i think just because of the way the position is played out so often 
I mean, one of the things you heard coming into this season was that Jonathan Quick is the best playoff goaltender that, you know, ever playoff goaltended. And <laughs> and uh, he yeah. got lit up by the Sharks, and he's been lit up before in playoff series. But th- there's sort of a dominant narrative, and people kind of forget that performances are highly fluid. There's so many different factors that go into it. Um, I, I, I know we could probably spend the whole hour talking about how random goaltending is, but it, it's one of those positions to me where when you're wrong enough times about it, it you kind of have to sit back and go, look, these guys just are not predictable to the degree that we want them to be with the statistics that we have. Yep. Yeah, no, that's well said. Uh, okay, let me read some numbers for you here. Uh, 56 wins, 120 points, plus 59 goal differential. All those led the league this year, and all of those were the numbers put together by the Washington Capitals, who once again fell short in the in the second round. Um, I, I understand it's human nature to try and make too much of things instantly and when they go south and to overreact, but I I, I can't believe we're, we're doing this all over again with the Capitals. I, you would think that you would learn from, from past history and, and adjust and not make those same mistakes all over again, but once again, we're having people wondering whether the capitals need to make some sort of fundamental changes this summer to finally get over the hump which is which is uh endlessly amusing to me <laughs> well uh you know san jose and st louis really had to blow up their core to to get to the con <laughs> oh wait hang on yes. yeah uh, washington's an interesting team to me i think they are a team that you can look at and say you know what there's there's some room for improvement there right um as as good as their regular season was they were not a a really truly dominant five-on-five team by the shot metrics over the course of the year. Um, I, I know there's some suspicion that maybe that just comes because of they uh, sorry because they sewed up the first place so early in the year and then they kind of coasted the back half of the year. I don't know how much stock I put in that. Right. But but this is obviously a very good team and and the thing is when you're in a really close playoff series, it's what. A shift of two, maybe three goals, and things go dramatically different. Mm-hmm. It, it's to me, it's it's just so close that this is another place where maybe humility comes in a little bit, and you go, "Okay, I put together a really good hockey team. It fell two goals short in a playoff round. I'm not going to go back to the drawing board and start from scratch here because sometimes these things are just." you know, outside of your control. So you fix what you can, but I don't think you abandon the whole core as flawed. And and the last thing I'd say about Washington, just because it just popped into my head here, is the last time they were a really successful team for a long time, ran into some playoff turbulence, they blew the whole thing up. Not the whole thing, but, you know, right. canning Bruce Boudreaux, bringing in new coaches. And that turbulence set the franchise back. Yes. It, it did not improve things. And and that, to me, is the lesson that, that Washington's management should be taking into the summer. Right. And I honestly don't even think there's many sort of fundamental changes to make, even if you wanted to, right? Like a lot of these core guys are locked up long term on unreasonable deals and, you know, they've got a good coach in place and a good goalie. And I think there's some stuff fine tuning around the edges that they could do, particularly on the third pairing and, and the bottom six, just, just bringing more speed into the lineup in case they do have to play a Tampa Bay or a Pittsburgh again late in the playoffs next year. But I think that's, that's true for every team, right? Like no team is, is perfect in the sense that you, you can just bring it all back without making any sort 
sort of uh, marginal adjustments. Like even the Penguins, as we just mentioned, as good as they are and as well as they're playing, they could desperately use a, a facelift on their blue line this summer, regardless of how their their postseason winds up shaking out. So I think that, you know, you, if you're the, running the caps, you just really bring this all back and, and just hope for better fortune next year in terms of both the bounces and, and the draw in terms of the bracket. Yeah, I think for the most part, you're right. You can play around the edges and uh, make those little tweaks that can make a big difference. Um, and, you know, maybe you get lucky and you get the chance to make a, a Sutter for Benino kind of trade the way Pittsburgh did. Yep. And and that gives you some extra dimension inside your bottom six. That that to me is, is where Washington is. It, it's not in a position where it needs to make huge changes. If it can add an impact player or two in those in those sort of depth roles, somebody who's maybe a little bit underrated. That could go a long way, but but it's a very good team. It came very close this year. Yeah, and definitely did. Um, and a, a team they could draw some lessons from in terms of patience and and waiting things out is the St. Louis Blues. And, and let's discuss them because you watch some of these broadcasts for their games, and and so much time and energy is spent by the people calling the game, discussing the gritty way the Blues play, the the way they exemplify the Western Conference style, where you have guys like Backus and Brower and and Ryan Reeves who are heavy players that that punish the opponents with with physicality down low. And 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 fine, that, that that's true. But I think there's an important distinction to be made here in the sense that there's a lot of functionality to the blues where they're not just throwing hits for the sake of throwing hits or just dumping the puck in because it's the easy thing to do and and they're just content going back and playing defense it seems like there's a, a concerted effort and plan here and i think that the way they beat the stars was they really did a good job of, of throttling them in the neutral zone where they congested everything and they created a lot of offense off of their awesome forecheck right well, it's funny when you when you frame it that way because I think I've heard more about Steve Ott in these yes. playoffs than I have Alex <laughs> Petrangelo, and right. it it just it, it you know it makes you want to pull your hair out. Like uh, this is a bit player who is certainly part of the Blues team identity, but that that is not the sole reason they win. Mm-hmm. Uh, St. Louis has been. You know, St. Louis has sort of been a, a poor man's Los Angeles Kings for for a number of years now. I, I think you could say the make a similar case for this year and that they're a good but not brilliant um, puck possession team. To me, the big thing with the Blues is really the adjustments that Ken Hitchcock made coming out of the first round. Um, Vladimir Tarasenko played, I can't remember exactly what the number was, but he played something around 17 minutes in that Game 7 win where St. Louis had the lead for most of the night. Mm -hmm. And that was more than he had played in either four or five of the first round games against Chicago and Ken Hitchcock was taking just a, a ton of heat for the, the usage of, of Tarasenko who is his best offensive player. And to me, the fact that he changed from round one to round two was a, a fantastic sign. And there was a, a line in, um, in game seven that he, he told the NBC broadcast that, uh, Basically, they couldn't just sit back and flip pucks in because if they did with the lead, because if they did that, it's what Dallas had done in Game Six, and to some degree, it's what they did in Game Seven, where they they went up to nothing, and then Chicago got fourteen straight straight shots and tied the game. Mm-hmm. So it's a team that has made adjustments over the co- course of the postseason, and the kind of adjustments that you know don't fit the the big strong grinding team narrative. And I mean, they certainly are that team, but they've gotten. Um, smarter over the course of the playoffs about playing uh, a more complete game. Yeah, no, they have, and and you're right about that. that that's a an important 
kind of thing to to look at in in terms of how they play with the lead because that is a very Ken Hitchcock thing. He's he's been known to be conservative with leads and sit back, and it's cost them as it does with everyone really because score effects are a very real thing and. And we saw a little bit of it in game two where it nearly cost them that game and they eventually wound up winning it in overtime. And then after that, it, it was, it was much smoother sailing. And I, I was a little bit surprised that it honestly took seven games for them to finish the stars off. It's, I guess it's a testament to just, uh, the immense talent and the really good year Dallas had themselves. But it felt like watching these games, they were, they were dominating the run of the play for most of the series. There were a few bursts here and there in typical stars fashion where they'd really get a full head of steam and, and they look unstoppable for a few minutes. But they did a really good job of limiting those sequences. And after game one, I really felt like it was just mostly all St. Louis. It's it's pretty well. Yeah, game one is the is maybe the best game that the stars played in the series. I thought, um, but then you know it's funny because we we say that and yet game seven, if not for the goaltending, could have gone right. in a very different way. It it, um, it didn't feel to me like St. Louis was that brilliant early, but all of a sudden they're ahead by three goals. And and of course, in saying that, I have to give them credit because they had that really close offside call. They lost, I, I believe it was the 2 nothing goal, and then they came back and scored two quick ones. And, and that's something you don't always see. Sometimes when there's a goal called off, it kind of feels like it deflates the team. Right. And... and uh, that's something you have to give them credit for. But in the end, you know, this was a, a really close series. It went six games and then the Stars goaltending just kind of blew up and, yeah. and St. Louis, you know, coasted to a game seven win. Well, here's my analogy. It's it's game one. Definitely the Stars played really well and the Blues looked a little discombobulated. And I think that it's like it's like when you're playing against the Stars, you're sort of in a different time zone and you just need that one game to sort of adjust to their speed. And it really felt like after they got that game under their belt, uh, the entire series as a whole was was drastically different. And it's probably a, a testament to adjustments that Ken Hitchcock made and, and the players themselves. But they're really good and they have a ton of skill. And it's easy. Yeah, guys like Steve Ott and Ryan Reeves, as you mentioned, get a ton of the the attention. But I mean, look at the skill on this team with guys like Fabry and Schwartz and Tarasenko, and and they've done a really good job of drafting over the years. And considering they're not necessarily a, a cap team, uh, it's it's helped them a lot in terms of uh, remaking the the way they play and and how they're capable of scoring goals. And it makes for a fascinating Western Conference final against the Sharks. Absolutely. And uh, drafting is a huge part of it. But the, the one acquisition that I'd really key in on, just because um, it's been so criticized, including by me, uh, over the course of it, is the signing of Paul Stastny. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, people say you can't really add these impact players via free agency. A lot of the time, it's it's hard to get them. You end up overpaying for them, et cetera, et cetera. But Stastny in, the, in this postseason has been really excellent and given them I, I mean between him Bacchus and Laterra they've got and you can toss Patrick Berglund in there too but they've got exceptional depth down the middle uh, you look at the roster they've got exceptional depth at center and on right defense which are maybe the two most important skating positions and the two hardest to fill right yeah and that's a testament to drafting but it's also a testament to, to trade and free agency like it's it's a, been a well-run team for a long time yeah, it definitely has. Um, all right, the the, the stars. I, I think they're in an interesting spot because it's important to remember that only Ovechkin, Pavelski, Ben, and Perry have more goals than Tyler Sagan since he came to Dallas three years ago, and he didn't play a single second in this series. And it'd be tough for any team really to overcome not having 
arguably their best player available for any of the games. But you look at what they're going to do moving forward, and they have some questions to answer, right? I mean, Goligoski, Demers, Chris Russell, and Jordy Ben are all UFAs this summer, which is pretty much their entire blue line. And they have $10.4 million tied up in Letton and Niemi for two more seasons. So I just, it's, it feels like we're going to do this all over again, where next year they're probably going to be one of the best teams in the league again. They're going to lead the league in scoring. And, Come playoff time, we're going to be dubious again of whether they're going to be able to make enough saves to actually sustain a long playoff run. Yeah, I think they're in a very interesting position. They went out and signed Anti Niemi in the summer specifically, so they wouldn't have these problems in net that had you know kept them out of the postseason, and it didn't work at all. And now they're much worse off because they don't have an empty spot on the roster, and they don't have money to play with the way they did a year ago. So they have to go in and they have to fix the goaltending. Um, that, that's a big deal. The defense, I don't know how they're going to be able to hang on to all those guys. Chris Russell, I I really wasn't that impressed with his postseason. I think you're being I know generous I've got, there. <laughs> it, it, it's just, to me, it's, it's an odd, and not that Dan Hamhuis is a world beater, but it's odd to me that they would go and get Chris Russell rather than a guy like Ham Hughes out of Vancouver. Right. Um, it, it was just an odd fit at the time, and I, I think I think it cost them that. Uh, I, I know Demers spent some time with the Duya, but for the most part, that Demers Russell pairing was a pairing, and it wasn't as it wasn't nearly as good as they needed their second pairing to be, particularly against St. Louis. Yes. So this is this is a team that's in a lot of trouble. Wow. I shouldn't overstate that they're in a lot of trouble because they still have all that fantastic talent up front. But but they do have a lot of questions, more so than most of the teams that get this far in the postseason have. Right. Yeah, I mean, there's there's like, what, 20, 20, 22 teams that would do anything to be in the position they're in but once you're talking about this next tier of of you know the teams that could legitimately win a stanley cup you do have to start nitpicking and looking for warts and i think it's fair to say that the stars have legitimate questions i mean it's surprising to me i guess it makes sense just how much they had invested in them that they would just at least see if they could get by with it this postseason but like a guy like james reimer if he really was available for a fourth round pick it just I just wonder what, whether this postseason would have looked a lot different for them had they had a guy like that in net rather than switching back and forth in-game between Naomi and Lettinen and just not really knowing what they were going to get at, at any given moment. Absolutely. I, one of the weird things for me was just the treatment of goaltenders at this year's trade deadline because Reimer was so cheap and he went to a team in San Jose that it, you know, we'll get to them, I guess, in a minute. But mm-hmm. if you look at the teams that needed goaltending entering the playoffs, San Jose was not number one on that list. Um, Nashville, Dallas, there are a number of teams that were higher up. And and not just Reimer, but, uh, you know, Chad Johnson in Buffalo is a guy who had a fantastic year pending free agent. You have to think he was available and not that expensively. And nobody picked him up. Like, this to me is is very, uh, it's very questionable. And I know the Stars had two goalies, and you don't want to get into that, you know, three-ring circus situation. But when your goaltenders are as bad as the Stars were over the course of the year, I, I think going into the postseason, it's not an expensive upgrade. You have to be willing to do, to pull the trigger on that. And and the Stars are one of those teams that they're sort of the opposite of most teams. There are a lot of teams with a great goaltender 
that miss their other problems because the goalie covers them up. The right. Stars are one of those teams that have such a good offense that it covers up the, the very real problems on their back end. And we talk a lot about Tyler Sagan. We talk a lot about Jason Spezza, like that one-two punch at center. But over the back half of the year, the the, the emergence of Radek Foxa, and particularly with Al Shemsky, the, the chemistry that those two players had, like I think that was a 56% Fenwick or Corsi line over the back half of the year. It was ridiculous. It was really good in the playoffs. Um, I think you could make a case they needed more minutes than they got. But this is a team that, if you compare them to, to Pittsburgh, who we just talked about, they have three, you know, with Sagan healthy, they've got three really effective lethal lines, and that can get you a long way, but ultimately it can't overcome a, a defense in a goaltending situation as decrepit as the one that they have. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in the regular season, their their five on five save percentage as a team was, I think, they were sandwiched by the uh, the Hurricanes and and the the Canadians, and and those are two great examples of teams that were pretty good elsewhere. But you know, Price being out and then Cam Ward not being very good really just sank both of those teams this season. And the 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 Stars managed to overcome it just because they they were scoring so many goals and and were such a good team otherwise. But you're right, this time of year where you're playing really good teams that don't have those same flaws, it's it's tough to overcome. I'm just I just pulled up the chart because it's it's fascinating to me. Dallas ranked 27th in save percentage at five on five this year. Mm-hmm. Um, nobody below 22 overall made the playoffs outside of the stars. And that just speaks volumes about how bad their goaltending was for the entirety of the year. Well, and then I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but the next team on that list that didn't make the playoffs was the national predators who we're going to discuss right it now. Was, it yes. was. Yep. Yes. And, um, the predators are, are interesting because I remember I actually had you on this podcast I'd say with about a month left in the season, maybe six weeks. And we ran through a list of legitimate contenders at, at that time. And you were, I remember, really high on the Predators and deservedly so. They have, they have a very good team and they can roll their lines and their defense is really good. And, and the big question was the goaltending. And I don't think it's necessarily fair to pin it all on Rene. Obviously, especially in that game seven, they gave up, what, five goals and it's going to be tough to win whenever you give up five goals, but I, I guess a little bit uncharacteristically, it was really the the blue line in front of the defenseman in front of Rene that did them in, and I, I, I don't know, I don't know what you do with the Predators. I think it's also another one of those teams where it's not necessarily a sexy opinion, but you just, I guess, you just bring it back because the the, the two big elephants in the room are are Shea Weber and Pekka Rene, but it's hard to see them getting rid of those contracts just because they are so cumbersome for so many years moving forward. Yeah, I don't know what you do about Pekka Rene, but he is he was a problem this year. Mm-hmm. Um, he was a problem in the regular season. He was a problem in the playoffs. If you go back to the first round, they had Anaheim. They they won the first two games in Anaheim. And they had a you know a dominant hold on that series, and they lost three straight. And Rene surrendered eleven goals, had a save percentage well below nine hundred in all three. Mm-hmm. And then again in this series, you know he played pretty well through four games, and then he had three really bad outings. Uh, surrendered twelve goals. Game six in particular stands out to me as a situation where that series probably should have been over. He let in that terrible third goal. Um, Nashville managed to claw back to win the game, but. That shouldn't have gone seven games. It should have gone six games based on his performance. And the team managed to win despite him there, and they couldn't do it in Game 7. So to me, Nashville this year really was a team that was a legitimate contender, 
and was let down both in the regular season and in the playoffs by subpar goaltending. And it's funny because Rene is a guy who has a big reputation and might be, I mean, not so much now after the year he's just had, but might have been entering the year the most overrated goaltender in the league. He's, uh, and, and particularly, you've mentioned the contract situation. Nashville's paying two guys more than $5 bucks, and Renee's one of them, and they're a team that's a budget-conscious team. That's uh, just an awful contract for them, and unless he can find the form that he had a few years ago, or even last season, where he was very good, uh, they could be in a lot of trouble. Yeah, they could, yeah. I mean, he's making $7 million a year for the next three years, and it, it, it's tough. I mean, he's, what, 33, 34 years old. It, it's, there's no real reason to believe that he's going to you know, bounce back necessarily and suddenly elevate his play at this point of his career, even though he ha- has had past success. And it's always a shame when you discuss these teams that are so good elsewhere and you know you put a concerted effort into building a, a meticulously building a group of, of 14, 15, 16 guys that are all gelling well and playing great hockey together and then there's just one position that just kind of submarines the, the rest of the operation. Absolutely, and it's, it's a similar situation to what happened in Arizona with, with Mike Smith a few years back. And you just you kind of hope it doesn't end up the same way. Number one, because it, it it stinks to watch these guys who were good sort of lose the handle on their career. But uh, you know, if you've got a starting goaltender making north of seven million bucks, especially as a budget team, and he's coming in with a sub nine ten save percentage, I don't even know what you do about that. You, I guess you try and find a cheap backup goalie, you know, like Arizona did with Devin Dubnik. Uh, you bring that guy in, and you you hope he can carry the load for you on a, on a on a budget yeah yeah uh the sharks man they're uh they're a fun team there's so many characters and 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 personalities and people to genuinely root for i feel like uh the approval rating of the sharks team is is pretty high especially in 2016 where on the internet it feels like it's very tough for for one team to be universally beloved and i'm sure there's there's you know fans of the kings and and other teams that aren't necessarily very uh very partial to this team, but it, it feels like the Sharks are just uh, our hockey Twitter's team, it seems like. <laughs> it's hard not to pull for them a little bit. Uh, it's the same sort of situation with St. Louis, but but more so because it's been going on longer, mm-hmm. where it's just you're so used to seeing them make the playoffs and then disappoint that, you know, you kind of just feel, well, it's it's their turn. Yep. It's, it's about time that they, they get to go on this lengthy run. And uh, it's such a good team. It's such a fun team to watch. It's hard to dislike uh, San Jose. Yeah, well, it, it's a really fun matchup between the Blues and the Sharks here in the in the Western Conference Finals because it's a fresh matchup for one, and 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 two, it's a it's what we've been discussing for from the majority of this podcast. It's a reminder that sometimes if you're a really good team, it's okay to to wait it out and let things that aren't necessarily in your control fall into place. I think that. For the Sharks, I was listening at some point in Game Seven. I'm not sure if this is still still true. Maybe they had an, another play, uh, power play opportunity or two they didn't convert on. But they were eight for eighteen in that series against the Predators at at one point during that Game Seven, and and they're just so lethal right now with how well Pavelski's playing and finishing and how how proficient Joe Thornton has been in getting him the puck and, and the way Brent Burns is, is moving it around. I think that if the Blues want to beat this team, they need to make a very concerted effort to not put themselves in the penalty box. And that has sometimes been a problem for the Blues. Yes. It, it's You're right. It's, it's just a fascinating matchup that way. Um, maybe the most interesting thing for me about 
San Jose, and I'm, I'm sorry, I'm going off topic a little bit here, is is just that the coaching change they made a year ago, they brought in Peter DeBoer, who, you know, didn't have the greatest reputation after his time in New Jersey. Right. And uh, it's it's fascinating to me the way things have have shifted. It, you know, it's it's easy to overread this because San Jose has been a good team for a long time, and and when you're when you're a good team for a long time, not a lot really needs to change. Like we've just discussed with Washington, you know, not a lot needs to have gone the other way for it to work out. And this year, it it has worked out for them. It's just it's very interesting to me that Peter DeBoer is the guy behind the bench for this turnaround after the way things went down in New Jersey. I mean, how much has Todd McClellan been drinking in this postseason? Like he must be just like, just, just, <laughs> just, 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 you know, threw away his cell phone and just went to some remote Island where no one can reach him. And it just must be just, I can't imagine being that guy just watching this being like, Oh, come on. Like this could have so easily been me because I don't think that Peter DeBoer has necessarily made some sort of, you know, revolutionary earth shattering changes to this team that, that have propelled them. It, it's, it's a lot of the, the same, cast and characters doing the similar things they've been doing for years and there's been little fine fine tune adjustments along the way but it, 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 it is just a reminder of of how cruel this business can be where Todd McClellan is is coaching the Oilers now and and Peter DeBoer in his first year might very well make the Stanley Cup final yeah it, well I mean if I, I feel bad for for Todd McClellan and his staff, and and really everybody in San Jose. Particularly, you go back to that year where they had a three nothing series lead on the Kings. The Kings looked slow. The Sharks looked fast, and you know it just all came apart. And it would have been so easy for it not to have come apart. It, it's it's incredible to me, and it's just if you're if you're one of the people who was involved with one of those past Sharks teams and isn't involved this year, I think you just kind of have to shake your head that. You know, this team is not that much different than the the teams you were involved with. It just it it got those little extra that that little that tiny little margin that separates success from failure, and uh, you you didn't get it, and they do. Yeah, yeah. I, I think there's an argument to be made that if the Stars had beaten the Blues, that these conference finals would feature the four sort of most aesthetically pleasing teams to watch in in, in the NHL. And uh, we're going to have to settle for the blues who just have Vladimir Tarasenko, who's one of the most electrifying players in the league. And, and will probably score a handful of goals in this upcoming series. So I think it's a, it's a pretty good time to be a hockey fan with just the, the high level of hockey that's going to be played in the, in both of these series. I absolutely agree. It's uh it's going to be fun to watch. I was sort of, you know, half hoping for a, a Dallas San Jose matchup for the reasons you say, just because it was going to, it had the potential to be one of those run and gun high offense series yeah. that you just don't get to see very often. And San Jose St. Louis is a little bit more traditional in, in that, you know, you have sort of an offensive powerhouse and, and a team more respected as a defensive uh, club. Um, one thing I did want to note sort of off topic here again, it's, you it's not one of those years where San Jose and St. Louis sort of dodged their old foes. Mm-hmm. You know, St. Louis, I, I know Chicago isn't the team that it was, but St. Louis had to go through Chicago in the first round. San Jose had to go through LA in the first round. These are teams that um, I, I think that makes it a bit more compelling of a matchup because it's not like they avoided fate. They went through sort of the, the old foe that had knocked them off in the past and uh and this year triumphed and that that to me is much more pleasing uh from a from a narrative standpoint right and and you know 
while you say that the Blackhawks weren't necessarily the team they've been in the past, it, it would have been very easy for this Blues team to, you know, revert back to those old unfortunate ways and, and, and kind of lose it all again, right? Like they were up 3-1. They, they, they lose the overtime game. They, they blow that game where they're up early in Chicago and then the Chicago goes on a massive run. And then in game seven, it was, it, it was, it was really tight. So it, it's, you know, all of this stuff in the come postseason is really just so, the, the margin is so small, as you mentioned, and it's, it can go either way, so it's kind of cool to see that it's finally gone their way a little bit. Is showing that there isn't necessarily some sort of a fatal flaw these teams have that prevents them from winning come the postseason. It's it's sort of evening out now. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And uh, both both San Jose and St. Louis had moments, particularly in the first round, where it kind of looked like they were slipping into old habits. Mm-hmm. Um, L.A. San Jose game three when the Kings win and. You know, Drew Doughty was saying, well, we got him thinking about it now. It's sort of right where we want him. Yep. Or or St. Louis, you know, taking that 3-1 lead and turning it into a game seven. And both of those teams came out of it. And that's uh, not, not, not what the narrative would have you believe would happen. And it's not even necessarily what you would have expected. I know for me, when I saw St. Louis sliding, I started wondering a little bit, like, is this going to happen again? Because those intangibles that we can't measure... It doesn't necessarily mean they they aren't there. It, they get misused a lot because because we can't measure them. People can sort of make them whatever they want them to be without without evidence. But it, it doesn't mean that they aren't there. It doesn't mean that a team you know with a history of of blowing playoff leads. It, it doesn't mean that there's not some reason for that. Right. And it's it's kind of reassuring that with with both St. Louis and San Jose this year, either there wasn't a reason or they overcame whatever was holding them back before it it um yeah well it makes for a fresh a fresh final matchup and uh it's one of those things that makes hockey so interesting yeah yeah and there is a little bit of a human element to it right where it's like oh not this again like we've been through this before and and it's easy to kind of get down on yourself so it was cool to see them overcome that uh before we get out of here i do want to quickly pick your brain on the oilers a little bit just because i know that uh you hold them near to dear, near and dear to your heart and you follow them closely and write about them at Oilers Nation. And I think they've got a pretty interesting summer ahead for them themselves because we're eventually going to reach a boiling point with them where they can't keep following this same path. Eventually there's going to some, something extreme is going to happen one way or another. And I guess I'm, I'm wondering where you're at with whether you think it's going to happen this summer or whether you think it's going to come sometime later on in the future. Well, it depends on your definition of extreme, I suppose. I, I do think this is the year where it's entirely possible in a way that it hasn't been in years past that they move on from the, the sort of Taylor Hall uh, core of the team, you know, Hall, Eberle, Nugent Hopkins. This could certainly be the summer where one of those guys could be dealt, and that hasn't necessarily been the case in previous seasons. Yeah. Well, I, I think how they approach the draft is going to be interesting, right? Because they have the fourth pick, and there's I'm imagining going to be a lot of pressure on them to take a defenseman there and I think it's I'm not necessarily a, a draft expert by any means I've, I've started slowly doing my research here and accumulating uh, reading reading some good work by guys like Corey Primer and stuff and it seems like taking a defenseman like Ole Ulevi at four is a little bit of a reach just based on the intriguing forward talent that's going to be available there and I don't know I always shudder at the idea of of 
drafting for need because especially with the with a defenseman like let's say Uolevi is really good uh when is he realistically going to make an impact for the Oilers at the NHL level two three four years from now like who, who knows what the landscape's even going to look like by then so I think it's uh it's gonna be interesting to see how they sort of uh juggle what public perception wants them to do versus what they actually probably should do just from a value standpoint one, I have kind of three immediate responses to that. Um, the first one is um, Peter Shirelli in his interviews has kind of, well, he hasn't even hinted. He stated outright that he's very open to trading down. Mm-hmm. So I, I sort of expect that if they do draft a defenseman, it'll be one of those situations that we saw uh, with the Islanders a few years ago where they you know, trade down once or twice and, and collect other assets, or in Edmonton's case, maybe collect something in the here and now uh, to, to lower that pick to where it is. Uh, the second would be that you're absolutely right about the the time frame. Um, whoever they draft here, even if it's a forward, because people forget, you know, Leon Dreisaitl, Neil Yakupov, these are guys who are supposed to help right away. And Dreisaitl came out this year, but he really struggled down the stretch. These are guys who are not yet in the position. Like if you had traded the Dreisaitl pick for a, a you know, a, a top end second line center, mm-hmm. that top end second line center probably would have been a better player for you this year than Dreisaitl was, just the way he faltered down the stretch. Right. Yeah. So there is a time element. But the third thing is this perception that Edmonton needs to draft defensemen. I, people, I, I hear this all the time, and I wonder if, because I know it's the dominant narrative, but you look at the team, Oscar Clefbaum was a first-round pick in 2011, Darnell Nurse was a first-round pick in 2013, Griffin Reinhardt was the fourth overall pick in 2012. They have a pile of young defensemen, and if you look at their prospect list, if of their top ten prospects, off the top of my head, probably seven of them are blue liners. Mm-hmm. They have done almost nothing but draft defensemen outside of that first overall position right. for the last several years. So to me, it's one of those things where of you cannot draft your way to a solution here. You have those guys matriculating in the system, and if if the solution is young players, one of those guys has to be it because you don't have time for another one to come up the line. And really what you need is an infusion of talent right now. So if you're going to use the fourth overall pick to address the defense, for the love of God, don't draft the guy, trade for him. <laughs> yeah, well, and it, it was a little bit of a rough blow for them earlier this week. It was... Uh, release that sounds like Travis Hamanick has rescinded his his trade demand, right? That that and hopefully we should mention. I'm not sure of the details, but I would like to think that that means that his family situation has straightened itself out, and that you know there's positive news on that front, which is always great to hear. But I think that the Oilers just seem like such a perfect fit for a, for a right shooting right handed defenseman like him on a good contract that's that's still young and in his prime so i imagine that uh that was a, that would have been a good avenue for them to have that instant instant influx of talent that they're going to have to look elsewhere for now Travis Hamnick would have been a perfect fit he's a perfect fit age wise contract wise and the role he can play on the right side you know he can play 25 minutes a game or and and uh and provide you with with quality minutes. He's a stabilizing force. He would have been a perfect fit. Uh, so it's a disappointment for the Oilers, but like you, I, I just hope it means that that family situation that was compelling the trade request has sorted itself out to some degree. Um, I, I thought he handled a, what's obviously a very difficult situation with as well as anybody could. And you, you just hope that a, a guy like that, that the, 
the best happens and, and that it's it's not a pressing concern the way that it obviously was. Absolutely. Uh, Jonathan, man, it was a lot of fun. Um, people can follow you at Jonathan Willis on Twitter. I'd, I'd recommend just doing that to keep up with all your written work just because you write for so many different platforms and so frequently that uh, that's probably just the easiest way because I know you, you tweet out all the links to your work. So I, I'd imagine um, that's the easiest way to keep up with all of your uh, latest happenings. Absolutely. And uh, just before I go, I really wanted to, um, I, I like coming on this podcast, so I want to get invited back. So kudos <laughs> to the host here for a piece he wrote for Sportsnet about zone exits by defensemen in the first round. That's maybe the best piece of hockey writing I've seen in these playoffs. And I, I really wanted to congratulate you on that. Well, I appreciate that. And you've, uh, you officially uh, reserved the spot for yourself on this podcast anytime you want to come back on. Excellent. That's that's exactly what I was aiming for. <laughs> okay, then we'll talk soon, okay? Yeah, take care. The Hockey PDO Cast with Dmitry Filipovich. Follow on Twitter at Dim Filipovich and on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash hockey PDO Cast. <laughs>